Joran Slane Oppold is an international speaker, author, musician, interfaith minister, life coach, facilitator, and consultant. He is an award-winning producer and singer-songwriter and the author of Integral Church, a Handbook for New Spiritual Communities, Sentences and the Mountain and the Snow. Joran is also co-author of Order of the Sacred Earth with Matthew Fox and Transform Your Life, Expert Advice, Practical Tools, and Personal Stories. His writing has been featured in Creative Loafing, The Interfaith Observer, and on ProgressiveChristianity.org. He is the owner and founder of the Meta Center of St. Petersburg and Integral Church, an interfaith and interspiritual organization in Tampa Bay, Florida, committed to community service, religious literacy, and transformative practice. Joran is an ordained minister and holds certificates in religious literacy from Harvard Online and Sacred Storytelling, Multifaith Storytelling Institute. He is also the founder of Tampa Bay Interfaith Week from 2014 to 2017 and serves as president of Interfaith Tampa Bay and ambassador of the Council for a Parliament of World's Religions. He has shared the stage with Barbara Max Hubbard, Matthew Fox, Lynn McTaggart, Ken Wilbur, Jane Goodall, Michael Beckwith, Dr. Stan Groff, Howard Rheingold, Gary Vandertruck, as well as Blues Traveler, Blind Melon, Men at Work, The Fix, John Doe of X, and more at events like South by Southwest in Austin, Texas, Building the New World Conference in Radford, Parliament of the World's Religions in Salt Lake City, Embrace Festival in Portland, Oregon, and at the Integral European Conference in Schiefok, Hungary. Jorn, with such an impressive resume, I'm so glad to have you here that we can talk about unschooling today, another aspect of your very interesting life. So thanks for being here with Brendan and I. Uh, thanks, guys. It's really good to be here. Good morning. This is morning now. Yeah, we're all spread out across the world. You're in Florida, yeah. I'm in Belgium, yeah. and Brendan's joining us from Japan today. So this is incredible to get people connected through the world like this. Absolutely. Um, so I guess the first thing is, uh, you know, myself as someone who's in education and likes to think I'm, you know, kind of following the trends of what's going on. I'll be honest, it was only about two years ago that I started to come across the term unschooling. And at first, I think like many, I probably made connections to just think like, oh, well, this just sounds like homeschooling. And, you know, I've got friends who've done homeschooling. I've taught students who had been homeschooled or left school to be homeschooled and had some framework for that. I wondered if we could start by you just maybe highlighting a few of the characteristics that make unschooling its own entity and maybe what brought your family to unschooling. Yeah, I sh we sure can. I, you know, and I admit I, we weren't attracted to unschooling uh, because of any of the uh, traits or characteristics of unschooling itself. We were uh, looking for something at the time that, that served as a solution for the unique situation we were in, and unschooling provided that solution. So um, I can tell you a little bit about unschooling first and then tell you about how we got there. Unschooling is uh, is self-directed inquiry. It's a self-directed expression uh, of, I don't even want to call it education because it is more inquiry. With uh, children as early as you, I mean, I've seen unschooled kids, you know, who were just raised in it. And um, we're just now starting to see 
unschoolers, you know, going out into the world and creating their own businesses. This recent conference I was at, uh, I saw four generations of unschoolers there. And it was interesting um, to hear stories from the grandmothers, you know, the mothers and the grandmothers there who would, you know, who were unschooling back in the 70s um, and having to keep the curtains closed because there were truancy laws that, you know, made what they were doing illegal and they would have to tell the kids, don't go near the windows, you know, and there would be these raids from social workers to make sure the kids were okay and all of these things. And hearing these stories were, um, you know, surprising to me, but, but then again, I, I, I sometimes, you know, I forget that I live in a, a pretty privileged and progressive bubble, you know? So hearing these stories of these families who had to unschool in secret, you know, basically, uh, was pretty eye-opening for me. Uh, the unschooling principle is that, and this is just a really, really basic, how I explain it to people, uh, is that the children are self-directed. They're self-directed in their inquiry, and if you are wanting to learn about the world, well then you sell everything and you can get an RV and you can travel the world and you can learn about it that way. Uh, there are families that do that. There are families that put roots down in communities and have really vibrant communities uh, anywhere. Uh, they choose to live and uh, you know if you're driving around downtown that day and you see Albert Einstein on a billboard and the kids ask who's that crazy-haired guy and you'd say well that's Albert Einstein uh, he's the father of you know quantum mechanics and and then maybe you spend a month or two doing a deep dive into quantum theory and you know subatomic physics and the, the nature of reality and you know um, the kids just kind of learn at the pace they want to learn. And the scary thing for me as a dad when I started learning about the movement was uh, that some of these kids are learning to read at varyingly different levels. So some of these kids aren't reading until they're, you know, in the fifth grade or whatever. And for me as an avid reader and growing up with parents and grandparents who read to me and reading was just this, you know, really sacred thing, this special time that we had together. Uh, and books were something that we, you know, I was given as gifts, you know, books were special to me. And so to think of kids not being able to read, see, even if the language not being able to read, right? Not choosing to uh, read until later, um, that scared me as a dad. Uh, but then I also began to see a lot of these kids who were excelling. And while sure, there were a small percentage of kids who just weren't reading yet, um, there were plenty of kids who were, and plenty of kids who were, um, you know, maybe excelling in social skills. You know, those were the kids who were, you know, holding the door open for the adults, or those were the kids who were, you know, stepping in and, and, and self-regulating during play so that, you know, the younger kids were making sure they were playing with each other and it, whatever. There's the, all these other skills that were happening, and I was like, wow, these kids are, these kids are amazing. You know, and it doesn't matter if they can figure out what the square root of a hundred is, you know. So how we came to it uh, was that we had our middle schooler at the time, uh, who identified female at the time, was going through a hard time coming out as a trans teen, 
and we went through a really, really dark patch of anxiety and depression and ultimately had to pull um, her at the time out of school while we figured out what that transition was. And so we tried homeschooling for a while, which you might as well just be in school if you're home homeschooling. You're still doing all the online. We went through Florida virtual school. We did the online testing. We did the same stack of homework that you had to do every night. And um, we realized that the, the tension and all that anxiety and that stress about performing um, to that degree was still there. You know? And we just needed to put it down for a minute and, and reevaluate. And again, we were, we were dealing at that time with kind of a life or death situation. So we're like, okay, let's just put all of this down and reassess uh, what we introduce, you know, slowly and and when when the time is right, and we discovered this unschooling movement through some of other our other friends, other family uh, friends who had been doing it for years, and you know, again, I had this visceral reaction to it. It was like that sounds ridiculous. I don't even understand that. I can't wrap my head around that. How do we know? How they, you know, how how are we going to evaluate their their abilities in the world if there's no system around it? I mean, as a either as a as a dude or as a father, you know, whether it was the masculine in me or whether it was the dad in me, it was just reacting to this in a really negative way. And and in the beginning, my my wife had to be the one to really talk sense to me about it. And so we we tried it, and not only did the kids fall in now granted my now he uh my my child is now 13 years old uh, and this was like two three years ago uh, we still i should say i should disclose that we still have a six-year-old in the traditional uh, school system well actually he just turned seven so we have a seven-year-old in, tra in traditional schooling and we all of us as a family have fallen in with this great group of um unschooling um, families from all over the country uh, and we've been to a conference now uh, two years in a row in Alabama where we get to connect with these other families and you know see what they're doing and, and there's really a, a tribal kind of familial feeling when you get together uh, with families who are in this with you and there's from as far as New York and Canada and um, Texas and the Midwest and Florida and California and all over the country there's um, families who who gather for this uh, annual conference in Alabama so and we just recently came back from our second one so that's a little bit about how we got in it and um, you know I can tell you more about what we're getting out of it if you want. yeah well I would love to hear that because you brought up this question of like well how do we know you had this concern or this fear how has that been processed through you or through your family? What, what do you know now about your child through this unschooling experience? Well, what I know now is that he's finally reading for pleasure. And that's something that it's taken longer uh, than I would have liked. But at the same time, I look back and I think, well, if I had been forcing him to read, you know, or if someone else had been forcing him to read, uh, that wouldn't have been pleasurable either. So uh, just, you know, it does my heart really good to, to just sit and look over and see him reading a book. You know? Hmm. Yeah, and it sounds like the through line here, and I'm going to make some assumptions about maybe some of the other families you've met, is that 
like the child's well-being is at the center of this idea of unschooling, that there aren't things put in place that would perhaps just impede some of the natural interests, natural capacities of a child. Is that accurate? Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's accurate. Uh, you know, the word we hear a lot is self-directed. So you allow that child to self-direct their inquiry and their education. Um, yeah, based on their interests and based on their passions uh, or based on their needs. You know, if they get to, if they need to go apply to, to, to a college, well, then they better um, get in and start testing for the GED or start to, you know, do some of those benchmarks for themselves that that gets them to where they need to be. That's where we're, we're at now. Uh, he's wanting to go, to go back into a little more of a structured system. Um, and he's taken the steps to do that himself. He came to us with a bunch of stuff that he'd researched online. I can audition for this program and I can either do the, the uh, performing arts or the visual arts. And I think I want to do the performing arts and here's why. And there's, there's other people lined up to do this thing. And it's, I mean, He's had to do all of this research and all this work on his own. And I mean, that alone is impressive because you're like, okay, those are the, you're actually exhibiting the skills you need once you leave the system, you know, and he kind of has those skills already. Uh, so it's been impressive to see. Hmm. Yeah. It's like becoming your own guidance counselor. I don't know if you had those in Florida, but yeah. we had someone in high school who would basically tell you like, well, you need to do this next. So taking right. on that responsibility sounds yeah very self-empowering um one of the sort of narratives that brendan and i have had on the podcast so far is that conventional schooling kind of serves three aims one being occupational preparation so getting you ready for for the workforce getting you ready for the your place in the citizenship within citizenry and often to a very small degree self-development do you see that unschooling has those th has those three aims or perhaps additional aims on top of that yeah i think that i've been a believer for a long time that the educational system prepares you to be for lack of a better word a teacher right and the workforce prepares you to be a boss, you know, or a manager. And I think that any of these siloed kind of institutions, you know, even if it's, you know, I work in with, um, with religious um, organizations as well, you know, and I think that there's this kind of this inherently hierarchical um, conveyor belt, you know, for lack of a better word, that, that kind of moves you up into these positions of power and authority and expertise and the idea that somebody can come in from outside that silo or that system or that institution and know as much as you do uh, is is non-existent or you know most times challenged so uh, yeah I absolutely believe that the traditional school systems are gonna crank out people who can perform to uh, who can you know test to a certain ability and who can uh, follow instructions, you know, within a certain time frame. And some of those abilities are not what we need in the real world. You know, I think that, that those abilities to, I think, and it might, um, 
be be more connected to that third point when you're talking about like self-development um some of the abilities we need in the world are more along the lines of empathy and the ability to lovingly listen to people and connect with people and to be better humans and to take you know be be aware of or um in touch with our interconnectedness or take care of our planet you know our ecological system and be aware of the ways that the that people as a species interact with the planet and can can nurture that or exploit that and that you know a civics class or an environmental science class isn't going to teach that you know a humanities class isn't even going to teach that so uh yeah for many for many reasons i think that there are benefits um, to having an education outside of those silos and those institutions and those systems, but there are benefits. The, the, the structural benefits to those systems are are of value as well, and I don't see us getting rid of them anytime soon. Can you speak to the um, environment or the community that's surrounding a child who is being unschooled? So, for example, let's let's say you, as a father, notice with your child that. Oh, you know, maybe in some ways they're not developing some of those capacities, like the empathy or something, or or where you see perhaps, like, oh, maybe there's a blind spot for them here. Is there a place for the for the community to voice something back, or would it still again be the self directed side of of the child wanting to build that capacity, regardless of influence? I, yeah, give me a sense of the um, the role of others around the child. Yeah, the best, so two things, right? It comes down to the parents. It's got to come back to the parents, um, you know, and kind of that, almost that libertarian ideal of I'm going to be responsible for what my child is either ingesting or viewing or the way they're treating people because I've got to be the one to pull them aside and tell them, you know, this is how our family does things or explaining why, you know, the, the, the reasons why or why not to, to act and do certain types of behavior. At the same time, there is an element, and I've seen this when these, fam these families are together more than any other group of families, is that sense of that it takes a village uh, to raise a child. And these, these parents are unafraid to take another parent's child aside and say, hey, 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 we don't do that, you know, and we're kind of co-parenting in a group or in a community in a way um, that is, a, it's just a relief. It's, it's, you know, I go out to um, go out in the city and I am hesitant to, you know, even speak to other people's children, you know, for fear of how they'd react. And uh, when I'm around these families, there's just this kind of instinct that, you know what, I'm going to correct your child if they're acting out and I hope and pray you correct mine because we're all here to make these, these people integrate adults, you know, and it, and it takes a group of people in order to do that. So that's, what's cool about having this kind of multi-generational groups together with elders who can tell stories and, you know, and then you have the kind of younger to middle young adults and, and teens kind of watching, watching after the, the little kids and, um, coming up with ways to keep them entertained and, and self-directed too. It's just, a, it's in a really cool kind of microcosm when they get together. Now, granted, I'm describing 
one instance a year when we gather for a conference uh, for about seven days. And, uh, you know, we all come home thinking, well, that was, that was paradise. You know, why can't life be like that all the time? It's almost like living in an intentional community, which I should add, some of these families do. Yeah, that adds a, a, a much clearer layer to this. Some of my own experience from trying to research unschooling has given me the impression it's kind of the child as, I don't want to say the center of the universe because that implies like sort of the conceit or whatever, but I mean that everything starts and stops with the child. If they're interested, they do it. If they're not, nothing pushes them from their environment other than their own interests. But it really does sound like you're talking about taking back some of the, the parenting from schools. One of the things that I've struggled with as someone who is a teacher in the conventional system is in a lot of cases, I see these kids more than their parents do. I'm having a huge influence on this child's childhood. And it sounds like to a large degree, you're saying within schooling, your child's not being raised by whoever they got assigned to that year because of the district's numbers. Right. That sounds much more empowering. Yeah. And I should, I think I need to clarify too, you know, and I can, again, I can only speak for myself, uh, that you're right about that, that self-directedness of the child and that we, I wouldn't necessarily describe it as putting the child in the center. Um, because I think that that takes a little bit of the power away from the parents. At the same time, I do see some parents in the unschooling movement letting those children run wild and do whatever the hell they want to do. That's not the way we parent, right? Uh, developmentally, I think there needs to be something in place, at least until, you know, that kind of 12, 13, you know what I mean? 11, 12, that, that where they can, you know, where you know they're not going to make shitty decisions and go out and harm themselves. Um, you know, we have put some family rules, you know, this is how our family does things. Um, what the, basically the, the paradigm shift for me was that we're respecting these children as, as, as other people, right? As potential adults, that they are growing into adults and that you don't speak to them or, you know, take action with them uh, differently than you would adults, right? There might be some things developmentally that you would uh, reframe or, or, or roll out, right, at a, at a certain time, but that you're speaking to them with respect and you're treating them ultimately like a, like a, like a fellow human being. Fancy that, that you can <laughs> think of a child yeah. as a fellow human being. Right. It's funny how like foreign that sounds as soon as that's mentioned in an educational context. You've mentioned the differencing, the different ideas of sort of parenting styles or parent philosophies. When you're at this conference with these other unschooling families or in contact with them, it sounds like through, uh, through online all across America, you mentioned, what, what are some of the biggest similarities? But maybe more interesting, like what are some of the different beliefs or, or different types of unschooling? So I guess some of the similarities would be, uh, you know, and for those that speak 
spiral dynamics or or integral theory, I think the biggest similarities would be around that green kind of postmodern pluralist stage where the families are interested in you know um, saving the planet you know through either ecological through service projects or they're or again like they're getting completely off the grid and living in intentional communities or they are um you know going zero waste or they're you know recycling and going vegan and you know have a concern for all living beings on the planet that kind of thing i think there's a lifestyle shift there um that I think even with like those of us families who are still living in the city and, you know, living an active life and still doing all this stuff and plugged into the internet all the time. And I mean, we're still living those values, right? We still have those kind of green values in place. Um, but some of these families have really, I mean, they're really living those values, you know? Um, so that green kind of postmodern is something that we all have in common. And just for some of our listeners, we've often used the term sensitivity value to describe that green or that postmodern value. So kind of parents who are maybe seeing the conventional kind of orange ambition systems or the very traditional kind of blue, amber, self-discipline structures as not being what is respectful to their child. Right. Yeah, and I mean, and those, the, the, those, those sensitive, those that sensitivity to the planet and to other people, that kind of pluralist postmodern stage, is a is a direct reaction to that previous orange modern modernist achieve achievist strategic stage, which uh, is are those institutions that we're talking about, right? So to some degree, um, these people are rebelling against these institutions, whether it be educationally or politically or religiously or whatever. Um, and then I think once you move beyond that, you move into more of an integrative stage, which means that, you know, everybody's right. Yes, everybody's right. And everybody deserves a, a voice at the table, but some people are more right than others. Right. And I think that that kind of sense of enlightened self-interest is what sets some of the unschooling families apart, realizing that, yes, we've eschewed these traditional roles and the model of education and the institutions of education, but we are now responsible for putting in place some kind of framework. Um, and that might not be homework every night, you know, but there is some kind of expectation, whether it's an ethical or a moral um, bar that we're living to. You know? hmm. Brendan, you look like you have questions on your mind. Now, there's a lot of a lot of great stuff there, and it really ties into a lot of the things we've been talking about. Because obviously, a lot of the things that operate within the institutions are what we've described as the ambition uh, kind of value, which is the orange kind of spiral dynamic color. And um, I guess I'm going to play devil's advocate a little bit here because I'm kind of pretty heavily on board with the concept of unschooling. I'm a, I'm an inquiry teacher. I work in an IB school at the moment. In a previous school, it was um, a place where I worked with Rob. It was pretty standard and, and traditional kind of school. And we did try to introduce a lot of inquiry ideas. But as I've come back to this place, um, an inquiry school, now I'm, I'm seeing um, 
that sliding scale much more. And I guess what you're describing with unschooling is at the uh, far end of that sliding scale of, of um, student-centered kind of uh, self-directed inquiry. And I guess even within the system I'm working in, as you move further and further down that line towards more student-centered or student-led inquiry, a lot of fears start to pop up in people. And you described some of your own as a parent. And I, I, the, first, the first fear is one you did kind of touch on before, and I'd just like to kind of come back to a little bit of a lot of school is about measuring. And even when you move towards inquiry, we still have a lot of checks and balances in place to say that this standard's been met or these kind of expectations. Is that something that you're kind of, uh, uh, is discussed much within the kind of unschooling network of, of kind of expectations and standards, um, academically as well as behaviorally or just uh, kind of de developmentally within students? Um, I think that, you know, again, I can only speak for myself. What I see is a community of, of parents and elders who are really aware of the children being happy and successful. And I think that that means a lot of different things to different people. Obviously, a, a, a family who's possibly living in an intentional community might not have the expectation that their child graduates out or moves into society in a performative or functional nature, right? That they fill some kind of position, yeah. um, you know, becomes a, a good employee or, you know, works for a wage or whatever. They're going to have a good, they're, they're going to expect them to like stay and work on the farm or, you know, pull honey or whatever it is that they're doing, sure. uh, you know, which is its own structure and its own hierarchy in a way. Um, but I think what I see is this expectation, at least in our family, is that, you know what, if they are wanting to go work for a wage for somebody else and fulfill somebody's, somebody else's dream and vision for a while, that's great. But what we are instilling in our children and in my family is the sense that you can, be your, you can own your own business and you can run your own business one day and stop thinking like an employee or a worker bee um, when you go out into society and see all of these people living in these certain roles and, and fulfilling these certain archetypes, um, just trying to kind of transcend the system and you, you live within the system, but use the system to your benefit in a way so that you can be fully present for everyone who is, you know, again, developmentally kind of at all these stages, you know, people who are playing the game of life and trying to win, you know, don't have less compassion for those people, but know how to communicate to those people, you know, using a certain language set or set of ideals. Sure. Because I think one of the things school struggles with is walking the walk. And this is, you talked about a little bit about humanities class won't teach you empathy, but we will learn about empathy in humanities class. We may write some essays and watch some videos but there's actually very little in terms of empathy being the, the thing that is um, focused on or, or, or measured if, it is, if, if the school's operating on a kind of measuring kind of paradigm. 
Right. Even a psychopath, sorry to interrupt, but like even a psychopath can like write an essay on empathy, right? But you have to model it. You have to exemplify it. You have to live with it. And that's the benchmark that we're missing. I guess this is kind of a struggle that is within inquiry learning because even though it, it, it is trying to move towards more action-based there is still a lot of i think talking the talk and, and getting through it that way whereas i think with the unschooling by its very nature it has to walk the walk nobody's yeah. nobody's impressed by you writing an essay on empathy right it's not gonna he's not gonna score you any points anywhere right and our seven-year-old um, i should say is in an ib school uh okay. so we're working toward you know he even at seven years old is working toward his his caring tag and his risk-taking tag and you know so he's you model that behavior and you're rewarded for modeling the actual behavior in the IB system which is why we love him. that's why he's there um, yeah so we're kind of having the best of the both worlds with the IB for the young one and the, and the unschooling for the old one. sure um and I think the IB does is finding its own way through um, to a kind of person-centered system but it's on some level also locked into that kind of ambition paradigm and it's trying to find its own way through a lot of the discussions that we've had myself and rob with people is how how this links back into the into the uh, kind of university system or the work world but i think we've kind of discussed i think we've got your take on that and it, it makes a lot of sense it really puts a lot of trust in the parents and a lot of trust in um, the child, student. But I think one of the reasons why school doesn't trust parents, and, and often it doesn't, is that we do have a societal fear of the extreme behavior of families that will go into unschooling or homeschooling. And be so far from societal norms that actually social services will step in at some point, or we have at least that fear. Um, do you have any any kind of take on that? Any um, any views that you'd like to share on that? Is that something you've kind of come across much, or not that I've come across, but I only only in people's bias and reaction to when I say things like homeschooling and unschooling. I think there's a, there's a, you know, I, I found homeschooling falls into two kind of major categories, and that's the ultra conservative Christian category where they're teaching sure. Bible-based lessons in science and ethics, right? And then the other more self-directed kind of green progressive uh, homeschooling tribe. And uh, when you say homeschool, I found myself, you know, you have to kind of identify. Well, it's not, not like Christian homeschooling. You know what I mean? You have to kind of qualify that. Yeah. Um, and I think that the unschooling has the potential not only to fall into those two kind of big buckets, but, but also a few, because like I mentioned, at the, you know, when we get together, there are kids who are, you know, running around without shoes on. And they're a little dirtier than the other kids. And, and that's the way they're being parented. And that's okay. Um, and then there are kids who are, you know, um, you know, what you'd consider normal kids, but they're, you know, maybe, um, developmentally, maybe academically at different, different levels. And, sure. and then there are kids who are like these, these bright, like, I mean, there's just like, 
I mean, all of them are amazing and beautiful children, but there, then there are these kids, sometimes in the, you know, when you get to the young adults, you can just see, like, there are these little rock stars emerging, and they're the ones who are offering to lead programs for the others, and they're the ones who, when you have conversations with them, you know, you just feel like you're kind of talking to an old soul, and, you know, you're like, a, like a fellow adult, and um, there is this an amazing, beautiful spectrum of development within the unschooling kids, and um, I think that the fear comes from the people who are so inside the system that anything outside that system um, just feels so radical, you know, and I can speak to that because it felt radical to me at one point, you know, and, and yeah, combine, combine that radical outsider uh, approach and, and philosophy of education with a radical and outsider view of politics and a radical outsider view of religion and eschatology and ecology. And yeah, you might potentially get a really dangerous family here and there who is, you know, preparing for the end of the world and teaching their children that, you know, everything that the, the, the system teaches them is wrong. And yeah, there's the, of course, there's the potential for that, but there's the potential for that literally everywhere. In yeah, of course. Yeah. So, you know, I'm not so afraid of that movement being um, viewed as radical because there's, like I said, I mean, there's like amazing these YouTubers and these entrepreneurs who are coming out of the um, coming out of the unschooling movement and being these really successful business owners. And it's like, okay, the the more we see representation and the more we see actual you know examples in the world of people who've come out of this movement and they're like these thriving, amazing people. I think the, the more that fear is assuaged a little bit. And it shows a, a, a hidden double standard that you're facing because someone will say, oh, well, if you're doing unschooling, you know, how can we make sure that the kids' needs are being met? And, and you alluded to the diversity of the full range of students from sort of those who are in the world and those who are academic and all this sort of stuff. Well, the, the fact is, in our conventional schools, we have that same spectrum of kids. Yeah, yeah. And it's, not a, and it's not a given that we're meeting their needs within that system. Some schools definitely much more so than others, and this is my critical side coming in here, but it's not like school is nailing it by right. serving every child that's walking in there, but anything outside of that paradigm, we certainly give the gears to, to be like, well, are you, are you sure that you won't you know, mishandle this one? It, it's, I'm curious if you see a potential for unschooling and possibly conventional schooling to, to meet somewhere. Like I, as you were discussing this, I was thinking like, well, I wonder if for some families, you know, a year or two or five years of unschooling really is what the kid needed at that age. And then possibly later it's an IB school or, or military school or, you know, like whatever, like, that maybe unschooling is the right thing at a certain time, but maybe not forever. I'm kind of putting myself on the spot right now, trying to do brainstorming and feel free to play with this as much as you want. But do you think there could be some kind of connection made between an unschooling movement and conventional schools for a year of unschooling, for example? I think that that would um, be a long way away. And I think that it would be small pockets of experimentation. 
And, you know, I think, okay, so short term, I think of things like our weekly co-op that we go to, where the kids are all gathering here in St. Petersburg, Florida, with other local kids from all the cities around, they come to this one place, uh, and the teachers are offering songwriting classes, or woodworking, or uh, cooking, or um, math tutoring, or uh, um, belly dance, or whatever it is, right? There's all these classes that they can sign up for. Uh, so engaging the, the, the traditional school system, let's say if the co-op, if the uh, homeschooling co-op wanted to offer specific programming, that maybe wasn't showing up, wasn't arising from the parents or the teachers there, uh, they might reach out to the system in a way and say, hey, listen, we need a math tutor for, you know, for the spring or whatever it is, right? Um, to kind of collaboratively serve the, the kids in a way. And then from the other direction, what, the, what you suggested is that you would almost prescribe, you know, as like a guidance counselor, like, listen, you're going through a transition, you know, I know your, your mom just died, you know, this might be the, whatever it is, right? Whatever the situation is, what might be best for you is to just unschool for a year and, and then come back when you're ready. I think um, something like that would be, I mean, it would be radical. It would, it would literally be like a, a pastor saying, listen, I don't think church is the right place for you right now. I think you need to go seek, you know, I think you need to go visit, uh, you know, maybe some other spiritual community or just take it take some time away uh, from the community in a way uh, and, and that's that's rare you know because we're literally they're the they're the fuel these kids these parishioners all these people are the fuel for, for the system you don't have a system without these people in the building in the room so uh, that would be pretty radical for somebody to prescribe an absence right um, and I'm not saying it's not not possible, uh, but there's going to be have to have to be a lot of dialoguing in place before that happens. You know, we'd have to convene a lot of panel discussions with traditional, um, you know, academics and education professionals and unschoolers and homeschoolers. I mean, they'd have to be dialogue for years before any of that, I think, would actually happen. And how hierarchically set up is the unschooling world right now? Is there a <laughs> Is there a president of unschooling we could go talk to to connect with our schools, or is this still like a a mesh network from the grassroots up? Yeah, I mean it's definitely grassroots. Um, you know, the closest thing I can think of would be this conference that we go to. That's organized, literally organized by a friend of mine who lives here in St. Petersburg, and he actually bought the conference from one of the women and you know people who are listening are listening to this who are familiar with unschooling are you know probably going to be disappointed that i don't know her name but she was one of the pioneers of unschooling and she had this conference here in the in the in the southeast and he bought that from her years ago and is keeping it alive so um you know that's one of the examples i could think of of somebody trying to kind of convene and when we get on the, you know, the, the, the conference is called Rethinking Everything. And so there are these self-selected kind of unconference style sessions where the parents can sign up to give what's called a red talk, right? R-E-D talk, which is a play on the TED talk. And they get up in sections of four and, and talk about what they're passionate about. And then they do little breakouts. And uh, it's a really, really great thing. And the kids have programming, uh, you know, separately from the adults. But um it's a it's a self-organized and it's a beautifully organized thing in a system that is known for not being organized 
So is anybody trying to pull all these families and kind of trying to stick a pin in the map and say, okay, well, we have a thousand unschoolers in this state and we have 10,000 unschoolers in this state, not to my knowledge, but there are opportunities for those families to reach out and connect through events like this and other networking opportunities. And Facebook groups, you know, Facebook is huge in connecting these people online and communities too. So people are communicating about, you know, where they're going to be and their travel and spending time together in various communities around, you know, all over. And they're getting to know each other as families in a way uh, without necessarily living in the same city now, which is the, one of the other benefits of postmodernism and the internet, right? Technology. I guess that touches on something that, that one of the questions I had earlier, which is, I guess one of the worries also that may pop up is the loss of the social aspect of school. A lot of our concept of childhood currently is based on the idea that you're thrown together with 30 kids for several hours a day for X amount of years in groups of thousands. And this is how your social kind of uh, normality emerges in some way. Um, have you have you kind of felt in any way that there's been a, a negative or positive um, impact of of unschooling in this area? I had that same fear and two years ago, and again, only speaking for myself, my kid has more friends now than they did before. I think school was really alienating in a way. And there were maybe one or two fr good friends that you felt had your back. And everybody else in that building felt like there was a, it felt like there was a game being played of, are you, friend, are you my friend this week? Are you not my friend this week? And with being now outside the system and having to kind of again, either through self-directed you know, research or us saying, hey, well, here's this dance class or whatever, or this photography class at the local museum. Um, he's been more involved in, I mean, he's got ballet and photography and theater. I mean, he's more busy now and, and interacts with more segments of kids, right? The songwriting class is one thing and the dance kids are another and the theater kids are another group and the co-op group is another group, which is overlaps some of them, but not all of them. And, you know, he sees his friends so much every week. I mean, we're, we're run ragged, you know, we're, we're not driving them around any less than, than we were before. We're probably doing more of it. Um, but, but, that's, but that's us, you know, again, we live in a sure. city that that has those resources and has those 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 you know opportunities there are kids who live in cities that are unschooling that don't have those opportunities and then there are the, the kids who don't live in cities they're living on the intentional communities or out in the rural areas that you know yeah that is a risk if you're not bust into town to see your friends you don't freaking see your friends and that can be really isolating too so uh, yeah absolutely i believe there needs to be a balance but i think that that's partly on the parents to provide up those opportunities i mean it's um it sounds like a lot of work for the parents i mean parenting is hard work i've got two kids yep. you know it's a lot of time would you yep. say that it's it's required a lot more of an investment of your time to unschool than um than your say your other child who's in a more standard school no no i 
you know, it's probably equal if you count the hours we spend working. Like, for instance, we had him put a, pull together a budget for his Halloween costume this year. Like, okay, learn to work Excel, you know, and plug in like what each item is going to cost and run a total and let's see how, you know, what kind of costume you're talking about. And, um, you know, that kind of cross training that we're doing is just part of what we do now. So it's not like we're spending two hours every night of the week working on homework, but we're folding in, right? We're integrating the skills into every minute of every day. So we're getting him to think in a way that uses the skills and actually act out the skills without having to drill and, okay, I'm going to test you on your Excel skills this week. You know, I know they can do it because I asked them to do it. Sure. Um, one of the questions that we've asked a lot of the people we've interviewed is um, we've kind of split, um, I'd say, uh, more developmentally minded educators into pioneers and hackers. So pioneers would be, I guess, people running schools and hackers would be more people such as myself and Rob that are in schools that are not necessarily developmentally minded. And the question I kind of put to people is what can we take from your practice and your experience uh, to make our schools more developmentally minded? And I'd say at this case, maybe Rob would would <laughs> want more answers to that question than I would, as he's in a, a more traditional school. But still, I'm really interested in what I could learn from your experiences. I don't quite, I can't quite think of anything other than an experience we'd recently had with the gifted program. And that was the gifted program at our IB school it used to be that the kids were bussed out to a different school. And then they do all kinds of fun stuff. Like day one, they just played with Play-Doh and they did whatever they wanted to do. Fun stuff, working them into, I think, some big project at the end of the year. The gifted program has now been retooled where the gifted teacher, and I don't even think they're called that anymore, is now integrated into the classroom. They're brought into the room with the kids who have not tested into the gifted program. And they sit at a table there in the classroom and they do the work and the tutoring and the, and the stuff right there in full view of the other students. And I asked the teacher, I said, is that better or worse because now these kids who haven't tested into gifted program have to sit and watch the gifted kids having fun at this table in the classroom, you know? And she said, that's, it's, that's not really how it is. It's just everybody knows me already because I'm in the classroom all the time. Okay. And so when I come into that classroom two days a week to work with this group of kids on a certain set of problems, you know, we're working at naming shapes and, hexagons and parallelograms and you know this kind of thing it's just it's it's not any different it's not any kind of shock because I'm, I'm, I'm kind of embedded in the class already um and i think that that kind of embeddedness and that sense of normality and that sense of being you know having a full view of the map and seeing that yeah. some kids over here are doing this stuff, but I'm working on this stuff. Maybe one day I'll work on that stuff over there at that table. Maybe one day I'll be a teacher. Maybe one day I'll be somebody who's outside the city. You know, that whole, that full view of the map, that is what I think maybe we could offer to 
kids who are in the system um, so that they know what their options are, you know, the sure. options, especially for some of these kids who are more at risk or, you know, don't have the resources the other kids do. They don't know those corners of the map even exist, you know, so showing them the full potential that they have uh, to do, to live their life out and to do their work in the world. Um, I think that could be the biggest contribution. Yeah, and I think that kind of almost deconstructing the school in front or with the students to show them how it works and the opportunities, that is one of the kind of um, things that I'm trying to implement in, in my classroom. And I know that's all of like my questions. I, I really enjoyed hearing, um, hearing your take on the unschooling movement. I have a little experience um, from people I kind of know and have encountered in the past and um, it seems like a really it can be really beneficial and, and, and I guess from your experience it seems like it was the right time and you uh, and it really worked for you and um, uh, it's just so awesome to hear that really positive take on on what is a very fearful kind of uh, educational kind of system or idea for a lot of people. So thanks very much for sharing that. Yeah, thanks, Brendan. Um, yeah, and I want to add to that real quick is that, yeah, we, we, we were responding to uh, a moment of crisis, you know. Um, different families are going to be responding to um, different things. You know, they're not, they're not all going to have the crisis that, that we were going through. But they might be going through a situation where it doesn't feel right for some reason or the your kid is all of a sudden starting to get depressed or withdrawn or you know maybe they're you know we live in a, a neurodiverse culture and maybe this child has you know is just learning in different ways you know maybe they're um being told that they should be medicated and you don't believe they should be medicated you just believe that you know um, they need to be talked to a little differently and, and you know, and you spend a little more time with them and, and certain, you know, everybody's child is different. And I would say for any of those parents out there who are questioning or fearful of, you know, I have to keep my child in the system um, for, for his or her own good. And that's going to mean medicating them and, you know, turning them into a zombie. And, you know, it's, the decisions aren't as dramatic as you know turn them into a a zombie and and keep them in the system or pull them out and um you know they, they become a gypsy uh there's a really there's a really really comprehensive and beautiful vibrant and diverse spectrum in between those two polarities right and so um i would just encourage those parents who are kind of in that moment of questioning and doubt and fear and uncertainty just kind of take a step back and take a deep breath and, and just evaluate right everything and all their choices. And you can always change strategy. You know, you can always experiment with something for six months to a year and then try something else again, you know, but I think the future of our children is at stake, you know, and I think too many people are leaving uh, the children, forcing their children into a system that just, does not work for their brain or their body or their soul or whatever that's just it's not working and forcing it is not the answer so that's yeah, what that, 
Those are powerful words. And that was my last question is what would you say to a parent who's considering this? Maybe just as a final piece here, Jordan, could you maybe speak to what the unschooling experiences allowed for you as a father and as a parent and for your marriage, even this unique setup? Yeah, I think, I think unschooling. And like I said, we've been only, only been doing it for a couple of years now. Uh, it has allowed me to really see my child uh, in a, in a different light. Uh, I've seen them take responsibility where uh, I didn't expect it to happen uh, and really step up in ways that have really impressed me you know i'm trying to speak in a way where i'm not like like taking credit we're like yeah that's my kid you know i'm taking credit for their accomplishments but um but really made me feel confident in them that that they're ready for the world that if faced with us with a decision uh that they would make the right one right based on um the highest and best possible outcomes right um for instance <laughs> well well you know be, becoming sexually active um at this age is is something that that sometimes happens and sometimes parents are unaware of you know the experimentation we we're really very fortunate to have been come to and asked you know like i think we're at a time uh where I want to start experimenting with this, you know, and kind of getting that permission, you know, from us. And there were some, there were some conditions put in place on our end, like, okay, well, you know, safety and, um, you know, um, we don't want anybody getting pregnant. We don't want anybody getting hurt. And, um, you know, also there are other things you can do that aren't actual, that aren't actual sex acts or intercourse, you know, and maybe experimenting with those, giving them at this age, which is, you know, 13, you know, and this is hard, this age 13, um, giving them the, you know, putting it back in their cord and saying, oh yeah, okay, well, yeah, no, I don't want to get pregnant. I don't want you know, after this is over and we're, and we break up, I don't want to feel betrayed. You know, I don't want to feel like this has gone in a direction that I don't have control over. So where am I willing to go with this? What, what part of myself am I willing to give up right for the other? And, and how much of this is, is what I want to do. And, you know, all of that, having that conversation uh, has been easier because we're training ourselves as parents to really force them to ask the questions. What's, what's the highest and best possible outcome for you? Right. Um, and I think that in the, in the daily, uh, it's a benefit because like I said, if I need something, some kind of work done, you know, I feel like, I almost feel like I have a little intern running around that if I need a spreadsheet, you know, built up, I can, I can task that out. Or if I need, you know, some work done, I can, I can delegate it. Um, that's been a really, a really great thing to have. And just 
instilling that responsibility and that authority and that expertise and all of that, you know, the confidence, the certainty to do those things that I think if they're a student, we don't allow that level of confidence until they're graduate. It's almost like driving. It's like, oh, no, you're not ready for that, right? Or, or voting or holding a job. Oh, no, you're not ready for that. You can't do that until this age. And I think that there's some of that authority and responsibility that we do hold back until they're out of school because, oh, well, you're, you're still learning that. So you're not ready to actually do it. You're still studying it. And I think that the, the parad- one of those paradigms for me as a dad has been like, oh, you want to do that? All right, well, do it. Make mistakes. Fall on your own sword. Let's, let's, and then let's talk about it afterward and figure out how to change strategy and try it again a second time, a third time, a fourth time. But um, those are great lessons, I think, and they're different lessons than, than you would get in the traditional system. Hearing the meaningfulness of what you're discussing there, it highlights for me as as you started to there, the, the arbitrary boundaries between school, family, real life, all of these different spheres that we think a child inhabits when really, arguably, it's one <laughs> giant life experience yeah. that they're in. And you can try yeah. and negotiate and parcel it off, but really, they are the ones living in, in the school environment, home environment, family environment, peer environment. And it's all swirling together for them. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's trauma, you know, in trying to compartmentalize that stuff. You know, if we think back on our, um, you know, school days, you know, those memories even feel a little differently. They they smell different. You know, it's like we moved into a different world when we stepped into that building. And that's why some of those... um, some of those behaviors and that wiring in our brain and that development can be so compartmentalized and not carry over, not bleed over into our, you know, our day to day because we do go to a different place when we're learning uh, and, and then when we're not learning. And I think that we're learning all the time. We're learning every minute of every day. And those lines have just completely fallen away from me recently. You know, those boundaries are just, they're blurred or, or, or at best they're an illusion, you know? I think that's um I think we're hitting on a lot of really important themes here. Uh I I got to wrap up now. <laughs> I don't know if you guys want to keep talking because I just feel like this has opened up a whole uh we could talk for several more hours now about the 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 blurring of those boundaries and the artificial nature and how we as teachers myself and Rob can actually move towards uh, breaking those down within the systems we're working in. Um, again, I really appreciate um, the, the time to talk to you, and um, I hope we get I hope we get a chance again. Um, um, thanks very much. Yeah, me too. Thanks, Brendan. Yeah, let's do a part two. Yeah, let's yeah. do a part two. If this episode of Reinventing Education was insightful or useful to you, feel free to reach out and connect to us on social media. We'd enjoy having your perspective join the conversation about what reinventing education might look like. Feel free to find us on our Facebook page, Reinventing Education Podcast, and join the discussions there. From Brendan and myself, thanks for joining us.